Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. Declaration of Independence wrote that he believed the two primary functions or roles of government are to protect and to empower. So when when Thomas Jefferson, who was the the mastermind, if you will, of the Declaration of Independence, um, he was actually in France whenever James Madison kind of wrote most of what became our Constitution. Um, But both of those men were just political and, and, and beyond geniuses. Um, but um, one of the things about Jefferson that's so striking is, is his continued writings about how he saw government working. And the two things that he said government's primary role or responsibility is to protect and to empower. And the thing that I think is fascinating about that is that those responsibilities of government apply to every element of government. Every element where there's authority. So in the home, the role of parents are to protect and empower. Within the church, it's the role of everyone who walks in authority, which we all walk in authority, to protect and to empower. And what you find is as you look through Scripture, that's really, really interesting, is that the use of authority in Scripture is never used for that one's own benefit. It's never used for self-promotion or the benefit of that person. It's never used to cause uh, people to gather around the one that has it, but to shore up those that don't. In fact, what you actually find, scripturally speaking, especially in the Old Testament, is the role of the prophet was consistently speaking truth to abuse of power. And the prophet's primary role all throughout the Old Testament was to speak to and deal with two things, idolatry and injustice. They were regularly, you find this with Elijah when he was going to Ahab, you find this with, with, uh, gosh, Ezekiel, you find this with Jeremiah, you find this with Hosea, you find this with Isaiah, just go down the line. They were regularly speaking about abuse of power. And the thing that is so interesting is Government done well, or, or a house in order done well, is always to give people room to be okay. It's called protection. Safe space. And to empower them to dream bigger than they can dream on their own. Anytime our, our if we can just use our, our actual government, anytime it messes up, 
is when it reaches past those two things. Ouch. Depending on your Greek, it means physical. Um, but uh, I don't know how taxation fits into that. But I, the, the thing that you find is when everything for us changed is when my mindset changed to I've got to make a space where people can feel just as free to fail as they do to succeed. They have to have a space where they can feel just as free to flop and fall on their face in the midst of missing what God said or getting it wrong or doing it wrong or getting too, getting overzealous, whatever it might be. And then also in the midst of that, here's the kicker though. How do we celebrate them? Because we're so reward conscious. So somebody does well and we high five them and they fail and we go, oops. Let me ask you this. So what is the, and as soon as I say this, everybody's going to seem all pious and, and I'll, you know, they'll, you'll look down on me like, oh, you mean you. Have you ever had something happen where somebody else in the room does something embarrassing? They slip, they, they, they do something silly and you know that they're embarrassed. And part of human nature's reaction is to look away because you're embarrassed for them, right? So something happens, somebody does something silly or somebody, you know, whatever, they're, they're walking around with their fly open. Uh, and, you know, there's a sense where you feel that uh, for them. I remember one time um, when <clears throat> I was at the dealership store, we had an elderly gentleman that came in, there was a ledge, and he stood behind himself and sat on his face on the concrete. And I was the only one that even went out there. Not that everybody else wasn't um, concerned, but they were. It, he was he was more embarrassed than he was hurt, and they were embarrassed for him and didn't know how to react. So the problem with messes is messes cause us to do this oftentimes. And there's two reasons for that. Jesus talks about both of them. Both of them are leaven. In fact, he talks about one of them as the leaven of Herod. The leaven of Herod is the political leaven that that causes us to attack to attack something that isn't right. And we typically do that to preserve the appearance of our righteousness. The other thing that happens is there is religious leaven and religious leaven just doesn't want to touch it. Because in touching it, in standing alongside somebody who's in sin, it can give the appearance that we're walking with them or condoning their sin. So let me ask you this. This is, this is my side of the story, too. Um, so let's say that there's something you don't personally agree with. It doesn't fit the bill of your religious beliefs. Um, atheism, um, Islam, homosexuality. Pick something. Whatever it is. Green shoes. Pick something, okay? Let's say your best friend comes out in public as being other, whatever other is. How do we respond? Because in our present culture, we're taught that if we stand with them, we're condoning their actions. When in reality, Standing with them, protecting and empowering is the role of those that are in authority. 
so, how do we, and this is something the church has never done well, how do we empower people who, as it says in this passage, but we're not told yet, okay, that are overtaken in a fault, how do we empower them to come up out of whatever it is that we feel like, and I, I, we're not even, we don't have time to get into whether we're right or wrong about this point, right? About opinions and theologies and all that. So we just don't have time. But let's say you're right, as I'm sure you feel you are. Um, so <laughs> just ask and you'll tell me, right? Of course you're right. Um, so if that's the case, how do we stand alongside that person? Because the religious spirit and the political spirit would say either you have to cast stones at it or condemn it, which the church has gotten really good at. Remember, like when all the homosexuality stuff came out, as if the world was confused enough on our stance, we had to write a protest placard and get a bunch of churches and pastors to sign off, letting them know we don't agree with their homosexuality. And I'm sure that really cleared up a lot of confusion for the gay community. They were going, what, you don't like this? We were hoping you'd build the uh, the parade float next year. I mean, seriously, this is what we do, right? We find something that's wrong, and then we have to attack it to maintain the image of rightness. Or we have to walk their hands, which what did... What did we see they did with Jesus whenever they called for Barabbas rather than Jesus? He did what? Washed his hands. Why? Because there was a controversy or a mess, the political spirit's going to wash its hands and say, nope, I'm not touching that. We've got to be so careful because authority always demands that we in grace and in truth and righteousness. I'm not talking about compromising what's right. I'm not talking about, uh, about bending righteousness. But in grace and righteousness, we stand alongside to protect and also to shore up. And what we find further is that within the instances in the Old Testament, specifically in the New Testament, actually what will happen is those who then are in power, who have authority uh, in, in a natural sense, oftentimes, or in a spiritual sense, if they are abusive of that, what actually happens oftentimes is God rises up to defend the person that they're attacking with the abuse of that authority. Here's the really weird thing. I've actually seen God rise up and show grace upon somebody who's in the wrong because of the abuse of spiritual authority that is condemning the wrong and abusing the authority in doing so. I've actually seen God cause people, and you have too. Have you ever had somebody that, that um, you know they're not living right, and you're living really, really right, like perfect, and, um, and you're doing your thing, and they're messed up, and it's driving you crazy, and it seems like the more frustrated you get and the more vocal you get about it, the more they get promoted. You ever thought about why that is? Because when we abuse our authority, God rises up and defends that. So we've got to be really, really, really careful with this kind of stuff. So whenever we look at this Galatians 1 passage, we have to look at it in that context. Galatians 1, 
3 says, My beloved friends, from the Passion Translation, which is a curious, so if you're following along in the King James, you're going to be confused. My beloved friends, if you see a believer who is overtaken in a fault, may the one who overflows with the Spirit seek to restore him. Win him over with a tax and payback and anger and vengeance. Gentle words. Which will open his heart to you and will keep you from exalting yourself over him. Love empowers us to fulfill the law of the anointed one, or in most other translations that just says the law of Christ. As we carry each other's troubles, and in the King James it says burdens. If you think you're too important to stoop down and help another, you are living in deception. That's pretty so what actually this says, now here's a question, uh, Noah and I were talking the other day, and, and I don't know why, but I've been kind of in this mode where I like asking questions at the beginning of our uh, teaching, somewhat of a, a teacher's kind of idea. So the question is, are you bound under the law? Here's where it gets kind of interesting. So in the book of Galatians, Paul on two separate occasions says you're not bound under the law. However... In the same book of Galatians, Paul just got done saying you were bound under the law. Isn't that interesting? So Paul says in Galatians 5.18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not bound by the law. In Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from the law. However, in the same book, he says we're bound under a new law. The new law we're bound under is called the law of Christ or anointed sonship. So the new law is not one that requires um, um, modes of of service or action to mediate and atone for your sins, sacrifices in the temple and things of that nature, okay? So we're free from that law, but what the law, and here's the interesting part, because everything, there were 613 laws in the Old Testament, 613. Most of them ended up being or twisted in a self-serving fashion. Get me something better. So, what, what Paul is saying here is, the law that now matters in the liberty we have in Christ is the law that lays down your life. No greater love hath a man than he would lay down his life for his brother. And so the law of Christ is the law that says, you are required to bear one another's burdens. That's actually what it says. Fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. That's what it says. Why? Because you have authority. And your immediate thought goes, well, that's not true. So let's talk about that. Look with me, if you will, at... Um, There's, there's 68 kids in that room back there is why I'm going fast, just in case anybody's curious. So it's 68 kids in that room. <clears throat> um, Hope was on, was on uh, boot duty. Somebody needed their boot. I don't know what. They needed their kickers. I won't tell you what kind of kickers they are. They needed them, whatever they are. They're not from Texas, but they're kickers nonetheless. So <clears throat> what you find is... That specifically in the story of Nehemiah, 
that this idea of the role of authority being that we protect and empower is the thing that is building walls. And we all have a responsibility, according to Paul, to fulfill the law of Christ or the law of sonship by us being people who bear one another's burdens. And I know what we have to some degree taught is that, well, you got to figure it out on your end because I've had to figure it out on my end. And you know what? I think that's a bunch of malarkey. I think it is it is has been an egregious error on my part as a pastor to take a passage like um, John the Baptist was the voice of one crying in the wilderness to use that one passage to say that we're closest to God when we're in isolation. That is an absolute twist of that verse. I'm not saying that you, there aren't times where you're alone. <laughs> Believe me, right? We all know that. But I also understand that we cannot be, it makes, it would make no sense to you as a parent to say, I'm going to give nothing to my kids. I'm going to invest nothing into my kids. I'm going to give them no understanding or education. I'm not going to give them an inheritance simply because I had to work hard so they better figure it out too. They'll appreciate it more that way. For the live stream record, that was Pastor Fabian Arroyo. It was a man in the house. So that's the reality of it is every good parent wants your child to have what you didn't have. I question your heart as a parent if you don't. Every good parent wants your child to have better than you had. In fact, in many cases, that's why you work so hard. Otherwise, you are absolutely egocentric, narcissistic to the nth degree. If the only reason you work is for you to have, then you've absolutely went full on you. So I, as, as one who has went ahead of others who are going to come behind me, have to be someone who want others to break through in areas where I've broken through and not to have to fight the battle that I had to fight to have that breakthrough. That is the heart of a pastor and of a parent and of a leader and of a government person and authority person and all that other stuff. And let's just say a Christian. So to say that because I had to figure it out in isolation that everybody else should too is absolutely missing the point of how generational legacy is supposed to work. And do you realize that if, if we would see this right, we actually build one another up. Do you realize that when Cain killed Abel, God showed up and talked to Cain, and he asked him where he was, and Cain's response was, am I my brother's keeper? And God's answer was, yes. And in fact, that Cain asked that question was an absolute clear indication of where his heart was and where the real issue lies. Why? Because you and I. You just are. Within the kingdom, we are actually members of one another. Because we are members of one another, we have a responsibility outside of ourselves. That doesn't mean for us to carry responsibility for everything that goes on around you. I need to be clear. Everybody else's problems are not automatically your problems. I'm not saying that. That's unhealthy and that's unwell, and we don't need to do that. But what I am saying is that within this kingdom that we're part of, 
when we are connected, we become members, Paul calls it, of one another. Some are fingers, some are toes, some are legs, some are eyes, right? And so in the same way that we're connected in that way, we're members one of another, and it becomes our responsibility to bear one another's burdens. It is healthy to be moved by the difficulty of a friend, a loved one, a loved one or another part of the body, if you will. That is healthy to stand there and see someone struggling in pain and say, well, I hope they figure it out. I'll be praying from afar. That's not Jesus. And that's absolutely not your father. And so what we find is that in biblical days, the walls of the city were protected um, and really functioned as the security of that city. In fact, at times, the walls of the cities were so thick that they could hold a chariot race on top of the wall. The, the most powerful cities were defined, in fact, in most cases, not by having the biggest armies, but by having the most well-protected cities via the walls. Oftentimes, what would happen is you could defeat the, the, that uh, really powerful city very easily if you just had access through the wall because they didn't have much of an army. They didn't need an army. What do they say? The best offense is what? Great defense. And so within that, that became the way that they operated. They had homes that were built into these walls. They had these thick, thick walls that actually became so secure that oftentimes you could have somebody outside of the wall throwing spear at it, shooting arrows at it, kicking at it, spitting at it, kicking dust at it, cursing you, and you're inside eating dinner inside the wall and have no idea. So the Bible numerous times calls the walls of uh, who we are salvation, that, that we actually, in the same way, the walls of who we are is protection. And I believe we have a responsibility for that for ourselves in that we need to make sure our walls are shored up correctly for us and then also for one another because we each become a post of the wall. So in the story of Nehemiah, we find that Israel had been attempting post-exile to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem for 75 years. Nehemiah gets uh, authorization from the king to return to assistiveness, and they build the wall in 52 days. 75 years they've been trying. Nehemiah shows up and they do it in 52 days. I would venture to say he had a good idea. Something worked well. So what you find in Nehemiah 4.13, uh, we're going to quickly just kind of pop through a few of these, is, is really, I think, a key for us. And in many ways, this is something we've been operating in, but it's something that we need to become more and more clear about and also we need to be more and more um, intentionally about it. Nehemiah 4.13, Then I stationed them in the lowest part of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and the families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw them fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people and said, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Now, Right there, we put a pin there if we would. The, what he's saying is, in the midst of challenge, for 75 years, the reason they hadn't been able to build the wall is not because um, they didn't have enough people, kings, when you build that wall. They weren't lacking in political rallies. They didn't have enough people. They weren't lacking in people south of the Mexican border to pay for it. 
so the reason they hadn't been able to build the wall is because every time they would accomplish a little bit of, of the wall being built, in the middle of the night, their enemies would come and tear it back down. Can you imagine how demoralizing for 75 years it would be to build a portion of the wall, go to bed, and wake up, and it would be demolished? And in the process of doing it, their enemies coming and demolishing that portion of the wall, guess what? If the enemy is going to attack you and you have three really good secure walls and one really bad one, where do you think he's coming? So they would use that as an access to pillage and raid and take whatever it was they were wanting from inside the city because they couldn't keep it secure. So for 75 years, this was the process. So he responds to their demoralized and very downtrodden attitude, and he says this really cool phrase. He says, don't be afraid, remember the Lord. Just that simple. You've got two tools to bring to that. Fear or remember the Lord. And I would at least like to suggest to you that you can't remember the Lord and stay in fear. I know that sounds like a broad stroke, but it's just reality. Why? Because as soon as you remember the Lord, as soon as you recount his word over you, the Bible says, and I, I don't, this is a theology, this is not a theology lesson, so I'm going to be quick, but it's, the Bible says his word is spirit. He is spirit. So as soon as you recount his word, you're actually inviting spirit to visit that thing. Here's the other thing. It says in the book of uh, 1 John that the um, spirit of fear is cast out by love. Well, guess what God is? Love. So as soon as you recount what it is God has spoken over you, you're actually not only welcoming his spirit to visit that place in you again or and enliven you and encourage you and strengthen you, but you also are allowing his love, which is the thing that casts out fear, to come so that fear has to go. You cannot drink from both of those pools. It's impossible. As soon as you, as soon as you say, nope, I'm going to remember what God has said, it's it, you are rejecting what fear is. And he starts with that. Then he says, verse um, 16, for that, from that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held spears and shields and bows and breastplates. The captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took the load with one hand, doing the work with the other while holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built. When the trumpeters stood near me, I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall from one another. Whenever you hear the trumpet, rally to that place, knowing that our God will fight for us. So a couple things are really fascinating from this. Number one, you've got two, Nehemiah separated them into two groups of people. You've got one group of people who actually built, so they had a plow in one hand and a sword or spear in the other. And then you had another group of people, because they needed both hands to do whatever work they were doing in building this wall, that he assigned an armed guard, a soldier to stand near to them to protect and defend. This is how we operate as a house. This is the point. 
we are all called to build and protect. At times, we see somebody that is fighting a battle. They are fighting and giving every ounce of effort to fight that battle. It is then our responsibility to be those who will be armed, guard, and protect them while they build. There's been some, and I want to be clear here. I'm not suggesting that if the enemy is attacking you or getting in that you have wall issues. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the enemy is not stupid, and he's going to try to find entry. And there are times when we're fighting, and it seems like we're doing everything we can to just deal with that battle. Have you ever had that where it's like, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to hang on for life and fight this thing. I don't, I don't have room to, I'm not gaining ground. I'm not dealing with other stuff. My, my back is exposed. I, I'm just literally trying to stay focused on the Lord and fight this thing right here. Sickness is a great uh, example of that. It's a horrible thing, but a great example of that. When you're unwell physically, Oftentimes, that's the only battle you have the energy to fight. And so, so many times we see people who the enemy will then pour on other things spiritually to keep them defeated. And it becomes our responsibility to come around them and guard and protect them. Because oftentimes, in the absence of the security of that wall being shored up, All they're trying to do is to rebuild the place where the enemy is getting in and keep that out. And they don't have a hand to fight with the sword while they're trying to build with the trowel. So that's number one, that there would be people who were assigned around. And I'll take this a step further. Um, So another thing that will happen, have you ever, uh, you know how sometimes when it's done right, There'll be instances where somebody's really fighting and somebody takes up the burden that they're going to stand with them. They're going to give counsel. They're going to give wisdom. They're going to try to encourage them. Well, guess what? Now they're both trying to build. So wouldn't it make sense that you need to have another person that recognizes that and they begin to not only cover the person who's having the challenge, but also the person who's trying to counsel and shore up. You see how this just makes sense? Then the next category that he recognized was there were those who actually could use the sword and the trowel at the same time. Now, the thing that I find is is fascinating is throughout the scriptures, both the trowel and the sword are both defined as the word of the Lord. The material that the wall is built from is defined as his word and the sword. We recognize that we know that all through the Bible as being his word. And so what you find is it's really interesting because you've got the what is the number one key then? You've got to have a word from the Lord. And and I'm sorry, I would love to tell you that this is enough, but oftentimes it's just not. I'm really sorry to say that. I know that sounds that sounds heretical, but short of him inspiring, short of you finding yourself in this short of a story or a verse or something that that actually comes alive in you, you just reading the Bible every day and you point a bunch of scripture at it is insufficient to retain you in those moments. They may help you hold still, but they it very likely will not give you the traction. I can assure you, though, what he's spoken to you is how you gain traction. Nothing will hold you 
like what he said to you. It's not a sermon you heard. It's not a good word that you heard on Christian radio. It's not something you read on Facebook. It's from his mouth. And I have had single sentences carry me for 10 years because he said it to me. The thing he says, and it can be so simplistic, but the efficacy of that thing is so stark because you heard it in your life. And what happens is we then get to use that to build and to shore up where the enemy is attacking, trying to cause access to get in. And then we also get to use it to fight off. It becomes the tool of actually both. We use the things he said, the promises he's given to defend those who are trying to build the wall. Here's another thing, and I, I'm getting over off my thought. So what I have really learned is that within family, we have an obligation. And there's something in somewhat of our human nature that we, we really kind of do this weird isolation thing. Some of the isolation thing is learned, and some of the isolation thing is um, innate in some way. But we have a tendency when we, especially if we see somebody struggling who's not maybe our immediate connection. Like if we have, So if we were to think about it this way, all of us probably have people that are like our immediate people that we maybe connect with in this family. So we have this person that's like, yep, I, I you know, we're really, really tight. I, I love everybody. It's not like we're saying somebody's above another. It's not that at all. We're just simply saying there are some people that we immediately connect with. We know that. Here's the thing, though. How do we do a better job at making sure that we're protecting and shoring up those past that immediate connection? Because um, isolation can happen both ways. Isolation can oftentimes simply happen because I feel like that's not my group, that's not my comfort zone. And isolation can then also happen to then that person because one of the things that I found about found about the enemy is he loves isolation. Just like a pack of coyotes, they love to get a dog alone. They'll draw, they'll send in a toy dog. Many of you guys know this. They'll send in a toy dog to draw out a domesticated animal and then to capture it. So what the, the enemy loves to do is he loves to get people alone and then just try to pick them off. And so what I really feel like we have a responsibility to do is to fulfill the law of Christ and bear one another's burdens better. How do we do this and walk in a level of, because it's just like a, a marriage. I know Tasha and I talk about this all the time. There are times when I get really, really frustrated with things. It's amazing because almost um, inevitably, almost invariably, every time when I'm, uh, I'm frustrated by something, she's positive and she becomes kind of an encourager for me and vice versa. It's amazing to me that I don't think both of us really get fired up at the same time very often. I probably could count on one hand the amount of times in 17 years. So like if she's ticked off because they haven't brought our food, I'm like, yeah, it's not a big deal. You know, it's okay. I haven't eaten today. But, you know, I'm fine. And then there's, you know, but like if our hotel room's not ready, I'm like, oh, what is going on? And she's like, oh, it's fine. Let's go walk around. Get it back up. Like it's you. You know? But that's just how it works. 
we have to be that for one another because more than likely we're not all going to be in the same place at the same time unless the enemy can isolate us. Then we all become isolated. We're all feeling the same thing and we're all being lied to that we're the only one that's feeling it. So as soon as I step out of arm's reach of protection for somebody, I then become isolated to encounter the same attack that they might be encountering. But I assure you, nobody else is being attacked like I'm attacked because it's my account. What's the worst problem you've ever encountered in your life? The problem you have right now. And so for a lot of us, we have to recognize that this is the law of Christ. This is what Christ did differently. And in the Old Testament, it was very much an isolated mindset. But in the New Testament, he says, no, there is connection and there's layers of connection. And we've got to do a really, really good job at making sure when somebody else, their personal walls are under attack, that we guard over them and that we aid them. And that what I would suggest to you is, this is what I try to do if I can give a good visual, is that when I'm with that person, I'm building when I'm with that person, I'm building them up. I'm giving them materials to help build that wall. And when I'm alone, I'm fighting for them. Because oftentimes if you try to fight for them when you're with them, it will sound condemning and accusatory. Have you ever tried to tell somebody who's really down that they just need to get better? Has that ever helped anybody? No. You know, I love the fact that when somebody loses it, somebody's hysterical, and you always have that one person that's like, calm down. That does nothing. It does nothing. And, and, and so what you find is that for us as a people, we really do have a responsibility to make sure that as we stand, we recognize that it's our job to see what one another is going through and to respond accordingly, to protect, to build up when we're with them. How do we see them better than they can see themselves at that moment? It becomes your job to pick up the burden. And you know what the burden is? His vision of them. That's the burden. Because oftentimes you can see somebody else better than they can see themselves. Does that make sense? I would venture to say if I had to line up, say, okay, this line of people has to give a prophetic word to somebody else in the house. This line of people has to give an audible prophetic word over themselves. This one would be full. Why? Because it's much easier to see what somebody else is in the Lord than ourselves. We see ourselves and we think, oh, I'm nothing. Well, that idea is, is how we stay together because in the midst of this, then we build and we build and we build and we speak of what God has said and we remind them in an encouraging fashion. We shore them up. We help them rebuild the wall. We catch them. We supply them with material. What's the material? It's always going to be his word. It's always going to be what God has said. We remind them of the prophetic words that they have. And then when we're alone, we fight and we declare and we say, in Jesus' name, my house will serve the Lord. In Jesus' name, I declare that he's not going to take this person out. And we, get, we can get a little more aggressive with our sword, but it's still his word. And then we do this for ourselves as well. Because as it says, sometimes you're building and sometimes you're building and fighting. So we have to do this for ourselves as well. And the reality of it is that holding on to this word becomes incredibly, incredibly,
incredibly vital. Almost in any situation that I get into, and I'll, I'll stop with this, and then you can try to do your thing. <laughs> I think he knew I had more notes. I think that's what it is. So I, what, you, what I try to do, this is just my experience, is that when I get into any situation presents itself, something happens, and I just simply say, what is God saying or what has God said? Sometimes I can't hear what he's saying, and I have to rely on what he has said. It's just me being honest. There are times I can't, what I'm facing is intimidating and difficult enough that I can't hear what he's saying at that moment, but I can remember what he has said. And so find ways to get alone. And oftentimes when I'm like really, really frustrated, really, really down, really feeling like I am the biggest loser that has ever held a microphone or not held a microphone in front of me, um, I'll just come in here and just read you prophetic words. Just read through and say, this is what God has said. And read them out loud. One of the things that we have to remember is, in our, do you realize that reading to yourself didn't start till about 300 years ago. Up until about 300 years ago, when someone would say they're going to read something, it meant they did it out loud. It wasn't until the last three to 400 years that we started reading internally. So oftentimes in the scriptures, when they would talk about that we were to read or rehearse the word of the Lord, they're literally saying we need to say it out loud. Why? Because my ears need to hear it so that my mind can process it. I would encourage you to do this. Take in those moments some of the time where you would be praying in the spirit and take five minutes of that time and speak in English. Why? Because your ears need to hear his word. There's times when I've been like really, really messed up and I can pray in the spirit for two hours and be really, really, really messed up. But five minutes of me just declaring out loud his word over me will change everything. That's why Paul said, I pray in the spirit and in understanding. Because you need both of those. So, I would encourage you, lastly, remember the word of the Lord. You cannot drink from the pool of fear and drink from the pool of what he said to do. You just can't. And I, I promise you, it may not feel like that fear evacuates, but it does. It has to submit to who God is. Because in those moments, know that when God has done something that you're reminding yourself of, those things that he's done, those times that he's interviewed, those times that he has provided, those are not momentary points of relief from difficulty. They are intended to be revelations of his character and nature. If what God has done when he provided for you doesn't change what you think about him, you've missed part of the point. He didn't provide for your rent just because you needed financial relief. He provided so that you can better see him as provider. He healed you so that you can better see him as healer. He protected you so that you can better see him as protector. And if, if those are only momentary reliefs, we're really walking away from the why and just existing with the what. 
So, Father, we thank you and we love you. And I, we declare over ourselves and over this house and over the saints at large, Father, that we will be those that stand alongside, that we will be those that in the midst of attack, in the midst of challenge, in the midst of just everyday life, that, Lord, we will stand alongside and bear one another's burdens and in doing so fulfill the law of Christ, that we will bear one another's burdens and that we will not operate in the leaven of the Pharisees or the leaven of Herod, that we will not fall prey to walking away from challenges, to being those that that abuse our authority in self-serving methods or that just ignore uh, uh, the, the needs of others. Father, help us to lend what you have given to others. Help us that we would be those that live with two coats so that we can give one away. Help us that we would be those that, like Peter says, that what we have, because we've received it freely from you, we give it freely. Help us to operate in that thing that says we will not let anybody fight through something alone, but we will stand and protect, declare your will, declare your purpose, and in doing so, the walls of our internal being and the walls of this house will be strong. We declare strength and we declare integrity to the walls of this house and to the walls of who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you all. I have no idea who wants to run outside first, but um, but I, uh, I certainly hope that everybody is umbrellaed up. Uh, so God bless you. We'll see everybody on Sunday. Good night. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.